Hi, Crime Junkies. Ashley Flowers here, and I have some news. It's just going to be me for a while. Britt is taking a sabbatical from the podcast. Those of you who have been loyal listeners know that she adopted a baby a few months ago, which for anyone who has had a newborn knows it is really freaking hard. But Britt is a superhero, and on top of this, she has started the foster-to-adoption process for a 10-year-old boy as well. Britt is literally a true saint, and her life just went from zero to 60. You guys, we have not been lying when we say this podcast takes so much work, and right now, Britt needs to focus her time and energy into her family. I'm not sure when she'll be back, but you guys will still see her modding our Facebook group and in our newsletter, so she's not going away completely. So knowing that she's going to be out for a while, you guys, it's just me. And this podcast didn't become easier. It's actually become a lot more work now. So I appreciate all of you who are helping to support my show by telling your friends to listen, by sharing our episodes on your social media pages, leaving the show five-star reviews, and joining our Patreon for extra content. All of that contributes so greatly to keeping the show going, and I am counting on my amazing listeners now more than ever to have my back. So thank you to all of you who do. With that, I want to tell you a story I swore I never would. I'm doing an episode today that I said I wouldn't do because a lot of you guys have told me I was wrong in something that I said, and I'm willing to admit when I am wrong. I've made a couple of mentions in past episodes about my obsession with the Maura Murray case, but I said I wouldn't cover it because it's been like so overdone. The internet is filled with this case. It's been covered a zillion times, but I can't tell you how many messages I got that said, listen, I can't find a really good comprehensive episode on this case. Do you have a place where I can start? I don't know. It's it, There's so much stuff. I don't know what's real and what's not. And when I looked, you guys are right. There are a couple of one-offs, but I have consumed all the six-part TV series, all the 40-part podcast series, books, and hundreds of pages of blog posts. So there is a lot of information out there, but for people new to the case, none of it is in one big overview. So I'm willing to listen to your demands and give you what you've been asking for. But... I want to tell it to you in the way that the case unfolded for me when I first found out about it. And I think it's because of the way in which I learned the information that made me so enthralled with finding answers. In February of 2004, Maura Murray was 21 years old and attending the University of Massachusetts. She had recently transferred from UMass to West Point, which was an incredibly prestigious military school, but she went to UMass in order to pursue nursing. The reason I think Maura's case got so much attention, beyond the intrigue that's about to come, was that she was truly as all-American as they come. She was one of four kids. She had two sisters and a brother. She was a star athlete on the track team and in cross country, always competing for school and state records with her older sister, Julie. Maura continued athletics in college where she ran track and cross country at both West Point and UMass. 
In Moore's sophomore year at West Point, she started dating a man named Bill. He was a little bit older, but still at school. He was good looking, and the two were the perfect couple from the outside. Even after Moore transferred, they stayed together and would often spend their summers and holidays together. And it's said by friends and family that the two were basically engaged to be engaged. They were planning on getting engaged after Moore's graduation. Along with her social life, her academics, and athletics, when she was at UMass, she was also working two part-time jobs at the university. As part of Moore's studies, she had to do clinicals, which required some travel. But Moore's car was in rough shape. So, on a weekend in early February, her dad came down to Amherst and went car shopping with her. They weren't able to actually get the car that weekend. They were kind of just scoping it out, and the plan was for her dad, Fred, to come back down the next weekend and actually make the purchase. So, they do a little car shopping, find the one that they want, then they grab a bite to eat at a local pub with one of Maura's friends named Kate. Fred said that this was a pretty normal dinner. Nothing unusual happened, nothing out of the ordinary, and after they eat, Maura drops off Fred at his hotel and then lets her borrow his car to go to a party. Maura attends this party with two of her friends, Kate, who was at dinner, and her friend Sarah. After the party's over, Maura drives back to her dad's motel, presumably to return the car, even though she lived on campus and could have just returned in the morning. While driving back to Fred's motel, she gets in a one-car accident by running into a guardrail, and this did about $10,000 of damage to her dad's brand new car. After all is said and done, though, Maura ends up back at her dad's motel, and we know that she calls her boyfriend at about 4.49 in the morning. Billy is stationed in Fort Sill, Oklahoma at this point, and despite the hour, he does answer, and they talk, and he tries to calm her down. He promises to call her back later in the day, and as far as we know, she goes to bed. The next morning, Fred drives her back to the dorm room, and he says Maura was very upset. And, you know, he says he told her everything's going to be okay, but he also said he was mad too, like any dad would be. She just crashed your brand new car, and it feels really irresponsible. So Maura leaves his car that day, and Fred didn't know it then, but it would be the last time he would ever see his daughter. Now, even though that was the last time he saw her, he does talk to her one more time. A few hours later, Maura and Fred talk on the phone about the insurance coverage on Fred's car. He tells her that she'll need to pick up some accident forms and get those filled out. After this call, we have very little insight into what Maura did for the rest of the day. We do know, though, that she spent some time looking at rental properties in the New Hampshire area, but it doesn't appear as if she had actually booked anything. There's this activity on her computer of her looking up this stuff until about four in the morning that day. Now, the next morning, she gets back online, and this is February 9th, and she starts researching more properties, and she gets directions from Amherst, Massachusetts to the Burlington, Vermont area. I've also heard rumors that she had directions to another place in New Hampshire as well. Now, this is a little strange because classes had just started. Why would she be planning to take off on a trip? Now, from her cell records, which her boyfriend had access to because he was on her plan, we learn that she made a couple of calls on the afternoon of Monday, February 9th. At 12.55, she calls Bartlett, New Hampshire condo rental. Bartlett was a place that they had visited frequently. Remember, she'd gotten the directions from there, and it's a place that Mora would have been very familiar with. She used to go there hiking with her dad. They went camping. 
Now, her dad's convinced she was going to go there because she knew it so well. She had hiked many of those mountains with him, and they used to go every single summer. So maybe she wanted to just get away from the weekend, even though the timing was weird. That same afternoon, after she makes these calls, she sends an email to her boyfriend, Bill. Apparently, he had tried to call her earlier, so she just says, Listen, I love you. I just don't feel like talking to anyone at the moment, but I promise I'll call you later in the day. At 2.05, she calls 1-800-GO-STOW, which is a reservation line for hotels in the Stowe, Vermont area. The line was out of order, so all she could do was listen to some listings, but she couldn't actually talk to anyone or make a reservation. Now, whatever this means, I think it shows that she had plans to go to the Vermont, New Hampshire area and at least stay for one night or maybe more. A few minutes later, she calls Bill, and she gets his voicemail this time, and according to his mom, who was the only person from Bill's side of the family to be interviewed in this first documentary that I originally saw, she said the message was really short. She basically just said that she loved him. After this call, Maura does something that to this day no one can explain. She emails her professors and tells them that there's been a death in the family and she's likely going to be out for the next week. But her friends and family know that there has been no death in her family. No one can explain this action. Family and friends say it wasn't like her to lie like this. And no one has any idea what was going through her head at this point. That same day, she returned some clothes to one of the girls in her nursing classes. And the next movement we know about for sure is around 3.30 p.m., She leaves the Amherst campus in her car. Now remember, this is the same car that is a hot mess and the one that her dad came down to help her replace. She first stops at an ATM and takes out $280. And this is pretty much all the money she had in the account. She next stops at a nearby liquor store where, according to one account, she buys a bottle of Kahlua, a bottle of Baileys, a bottle of vodka, and a box of wine. It is said that they know she bought this because of a receipt that is later found in her car. Now, this is a lot of alcohol for one person. So this is our first indication that maybe she was going to meet somebody else while in the mountains that day. Or, heck, maybe somebody was actually traveling with her. Even though they say on the surveillance video and in the store, she wasn't seen with anyone else. Our best guess at this point is that Mora got back on the road and started driving north. According to her phone records, she checks her voicemail around 4.37, and this is the last known call from her cell phone. We don't know a lot about what happened to Mora after that, but what we do know is that by 7.30, it was dark and it was very cold on that early February night, and likely even slipperier on the winding north roads. Now, what I'm not sure about is how Mora got exactly to the spot she did. She likely traveled on Route 116 to 91, and then 91 goes to Route 112 East. At some point, though, she had gotten off of the main road, that Route 112, and was in a small town called Haverhill, New Hampshire, and she was driving on Wild Amanusik Road. Around 7.25, Mora's car goes off of the road. Whether she slipped or was hit by something, it's not 100% clear at this point. We just know there seems to be some kind of accident, and her car ends up in the opposite lane facing oncoming traffic. Mora crashed right in front of the home of a woman named Faith Westman. Faith made a call to 911 at 7.27 to report the accident, 
In her call logs, which have been released but redacted, Faith tells police that there's been an accident. She is asked if anyone is hurt, and she says she doesn't know because she hasn't actually gone out to investigate. The next couple of sentences from the call are redacted. Just minutes after, a local man named Butch Atwood comes driving by in a bus. He lives down the road within eyesight of where Maura's car has stopped, and he asks her if she's okay and if she needs help. In an account from an interview he did with a local news station, he says that she seemed shook up and he offered to call the police for her, but she insisted that he didn't need to. She said, listen, I already called AAA. You don't need to call the police. Now, Butch didn't push her, but he knew that she was lying. He lived on that same road. He knows there's no cell service in the area. Therefore, there's no way Moore could have called anyone for help. So knowing that this girl is clearly in trouble but won't take help, Butch goes to his home just up the road and places a call to 911. This is the second and final call that would be made to 911 to report Mora's accident. And this second call happened at 7.40. When Butch initially called, the line was busy, so the dispatcher actually calls him back at 7.43. He reported that there was an accident involving a single female. Uh, She's shaken up, no blood that I could see, but the airbags were deployed. Heavy damage. At 7.46, the first responding officer, Cecil Smith, arrives on the scene. This is just about seven minutes after Butch talked to her at the crash site, so it's surprising to the officer when there is no young woman to be seen in any direction of the crash site. All that remained at the site was the car itself in somewhat of a precarious state. Like I mentioned, it's facing the wrong way in the opposite lane Mora would have been traveling in. When Cecil looks inside the window, he can tell the airbags have been deployed and there was a crack on the windshield over the driver's seat, but the car had been locked. In the back seat, we can see a box of wine and there appeared to be something pink dumped in the snow. There's also some splatter marks on the ceiling and on the side of the car. Later, when they're able to get into the vehicle, it's said that there was a Coke bottle in there that smelled like alcohol. Now, it's not just Cecil Smith on the scene at this point. Someone with the state police has dropped by to help. EMTs have arrived. And as the EMTs are walking around the car, they find something that will forever loom over this case as either a red herring or evidence of something sinister. When one of the EMTs is circling the car, something in the back of the car catches his eye. Something at the bottom of Mora's Saturn. It's a rag, and it appears to have been stuffed into her tailpipe and half hanging out. And nothing about this makes sense to the first responders. Did Mora put the rag in there? Is that what caused her car to break down? Or did someone else place it in there and wait for her to stall out so they could approach her when she was vulnerable? Officers didn't know the answer to this, but despite this red flag, they don't treat this as a crime scene. Now, it's important to note here that when Butch talked to the reporters, he said that Mora appeared to be shook up, but she didn't seem at all intoxicated. But because of the wine, or maybe because abandoned crashes aren't all that unusual for police in that area, police make the assumption that Mora walked away from the crash site willingly, and the attempt made to find her that evening was minimal. They drive a few miles back in the direction she had come from because that was back closer to the center of town, and they didn't see her walking. There didn't appear to be any tracks in the snow leading into the woods off of the street. 
So there had to have been some kind of assumption that she had headed in the direction she was first traveling. But for some reason, again, maybe because they assumed she didn't want to be found that night, no one goes looking in that direction. Police have Mora's car towed, and the next day they call Fred to tell him about the accident. Fred tells the police something that he would long come to regret. He mentions the idea that maybe Mora went into the woods to hurt herself because maybe she was depressed. And he even alludes to this in a later interview with reporters. And he speaks to Mora through the camera, telling her it's okay to come home no matter what's going on. We can work everything out. We can figure it out together. And you don't have to be afraid. And I think this lends even more credit to the police's theory that she's chosen to just walk away. Friends and family immediately start traveling to New Hampshire to help search for Mora. And while her boyfriend Billy is traveling from Oklahoma to New Hampshire, he gets a very strange message. While he's going through security at the airport, he has a missed call. And when he listens to the voicemail, he hears a strange whimpering noise. For a long time, this couldn't be explained, and people had theorized that maybe it was Mora. Billy had even said, I really feel like it was her trying to contact me, trying to help. But again, for a long time, that just kind of loomed, and we had no answers. After Fred arrives in New Hampshire on Wednesday, there was basically a command post made for Mora. They had worked from the crash site and worked their way out. They got a state police helicopter, bloodhounds. Now there's something I find really interesting and key to this case. The dogs were brought out about 11 days after Mora vanished, but they were able to track her scent. They track it from the crash site to about 100 feet up the road, and then her scent just disappears. Now, Fred has questions about the accuracy of the scent dogs because the glove that they used as a baseline for the dogs was pretty new. But if the dogs are right, I think it can only mean one thing. There were no tracks going into the woods from her car. No one saw her walking when they looked for her that night driving back into town. And the cop who came traveled from the direction Mora was actually heading in, and he didn't see her walking that way. So where could she have gone? It makes sense to me that whatever happened to Mora, intentional or otherwise, likely had to do with Mora getting into another car. Now, the police kind of say, look, she can go away if she wants to, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of foul play here. But the more time that passes, the more the family believes that something sinister has happened to her. They didn't think that Mora would stay away this long and put them through all of this without letting them know that she was okay. And so begins a rift between the family and the police. Fred has been very vocal about how he thinks the police have not helped. In fact, he says they've just been getting in the way of the investigation. And the more Fred points the finger at the police for not doing a better job of searching, the more police seem to double down on the theory that Mora was drinking and driving and she doesn't want to be found. They even refer back to Fred's own comments when she initially went missing that maybe she went up there to run away or to hurt herself. But Fred insists that that's not the case, and he wishes he never gave police that idea. So there's this rift between police. Fred saying something sinister happened. The police are saying, no, she probably just ran away. And they're getting a lot of pushback saying, no, she had no reason to leave her life. But that's not 100% accurate. It's not just the scene of the accident that make police think she wanted to run away. 
There is a strange incident I need to tell you about that happened a couple of days before Mora went missing. On February 5th, this is four days before she would leave her dorm room for the last time, Mora is at one of her campus jobs. At this job, she's responsible for checking IDs of people coming into the building. She was working the late shift, and in the early morning hours, Mora's boss comes by and finds her in what she calls a catatonic state. She's not stopping anyone coming into the building, not looking at IDs. She's just staring straight ahead. And when her boss approaches her, she breaks down crying, and her boss is trying to find out what's wrong, but all Mora can say is, "'My sister.'" So her boss decides she's in no condition to finish her shift. So she walks her back to her dorm, trying to help, trying to figure out what's going on. She asks Mora if she needs to go to the the school counselor or if she had somebody to talk to. And Mora says, yes, she has her roommate. But what we on the outside looking in know is that Mora doesn't have a roommate. And she's lying again. It's confirmed later that Mora did take a call from her sister earlier that night. After that call, she talked to Billy. Now, Mora's sister insisted that her talk was very normal, and she can't think of anything that was said that would have upset Mora so profoundly. So did something happen, or was Mora lying again and setting up this whole scenario of family trouble to get out of class and work? And if so, why? If we jump back to the time of Mora's accident, Mora's belongings were released to Billy. And everything in her car made it seem like she was packing for a short trip. A bag with clothes, toiletries, even her school books, which I don't know about you, but if I was going to harm myself or even run away, the last thing in the world I would be worrying about would be bringing my books with me so I could do schoolwork on the road. But along with her school books was also a book called Not Without Peril, which is a book that talks about people who went into the White Mountains in New Hampshire and either died or were injured. So some people look at this as a sign that she was thinking about ending her life in the mountains. But her dad keeps saying no. It was just one of her favorite books. She loved being up there. She loved the stories from being up there. And she just happened to have this with her. And it's not a sign of something she was going to do. After weeks of searching, nothing substantial is recovered, nothing that has a link to Mora, and nothing that would indicate she was still alive or still in the area. After months with no movement in the case, the family decides to start doing their own investigation. They start by going through Mora's call records and contacting those people that Mora called in the last days before she went missing. One of the first numbers called was of a rental place Mora was looking into before her disappearance. When they spoke with the woman who worked there, she said she wanted to help, but by now she had no recollection of talking to Mora. It was a three-minute call, so we know they had some kind of conversation, but there was nothing she could tell the family about the call. But the most shocking thing about this was that no one had contacted her before. Maybe if someone had tried to contact her, she would have remembered speaking to her or remembered how she was acting. Did she sound normal? Did she sound upset? How long was she looking to book this place for? And the fact that no one else had contacted her and it took the family to do it, this, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back for Fred because he felt like police were not doing their job and they were just getting in the way. Fred tried to file suit to get Mora's records released to him, but he was shut down by the legal system, stating that basically it was an ongoing investigation and releasing records could interfere with the case down the line. 
While the family is trying to do their own investigation, they do get the help of a local reporter who finds a witness that thinks they saw Mora after her abduction. According to this witness, she saw a woman who looked like Mora at a gas station with an older man. And this woman, who she thinks was Mora, looked very upset. And when the woman made eye contact with her, the girl looks at her and mouths the words, help me. Once the woman realized what was going on, this girl she thought was Mora had already left and she didn't get any information on the car or the man, like no license plates. And that was it. That lead just kind of died. Now, there have been other sightings all over New England and none of them have panned out. Now, something I should point out that kind of goes back to this idea that maybe she ran away intentionally is that it wasn't totally out of character for Mora to be spontaneous like this and take a trip. Apparently, one day in high school, she decided she didn't want to be there. So she hopped a train to Boston, spent the day alone there, and she came back at the end of the day after all her friends had been looking for her. So at first, some of her friends even thought, like, maybe she was just trying to get away. And I think maybe that's why Fred said what he said. Maybe they thought she just needed a break from her life. And she was just getting away for a weekend. But weeks passed, and then months passed, and then years passed. And Mora's family insists that she had everything going for her. Her dad said, listen, she's getting out of nursing school. She was going to have a great job. She was getting ready to get married. She had her entire future ahead of her. Because of this, her case was extremely publicized on the news and through social media, and no one could figure out what this young, beautiful, smart girl was doing on this New Hampshire road and what could have happened to her. Until we learn more. Over the years, anyone who has followed this case knows that almost everything we thought we knew and everything we learned early on, everything I told you today, was a lie. And this young, beautiful, smart girl had demons that she was hiding. I believe that the answers to what happened to Mora lie in the intricacies of her life in the days and weeks before she went missing. And I'll reveal to you the even more bizarre circumstances around Mora's life and disappearance next week on Crime Junkie. If you guys want to see a picture of Mora and the people in this case, you can go to the website crimejunkiepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepod. And you guys, if you want to keep tabs on Britt and follow her journey through adoption, you can follow her at Britt Praywatt on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to follow me living the life of a dog mom, I'm at Indie Ash Flowers on Instagram as well. And I'll be back next week with another episode. This week's episode of Crime Junkie was written and hosted by me. All of our editing and sound production was done by David Flowers, and all of our music, including our theme, comes from Justin Daniel. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>